0: everyone. So we are starting a new series like I talked about last week. We're going to be uh, beginning a new series in 2 Corinthians. And so before we dive in and read the passage, we're going to lay out the background because you have to understand the context of what we're going to be studying to appreciate the relationship between Paul and this church and where we see this in scripture. So before we get into that, please join me in a, a prayer. Lord, we thank you for how good you are to us. We thank you for your holiness. Lord, that you are entirely, perfectly holy, that there is none like you. Thank you that through the blood of Christ, through the redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, God, that you are, as your word says, transforming us. From degree to degree. To reflect that holiness. God, may this time be pleasing to you. We need you to teach us. We need you to lead. As John the Baptist said, decrease us and increase Jesus, Lord. We trust you with this time. Thank you for your word and the privilege it is to engage with it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've got 2 Corinthians, a book, a letter written to the church in Corinth. And so the church in Corinth, and why you'll see why this matters, why we're going to look at this history, but the church in Corinth was a prime Romans crossroads city. And so what that means is it was just situated geographically at the intersection of a lot of important trade routes, a lot of important travel routes. So what that means for the culture of Corinth is that it was heavily influenced by a wide variety of cultures and of people. There was a mixing of political beliefs. Uh, now they were under the Roman authority, it was a Roman city, but you still had people from different countries bringing their own concepts of society and structure to the city. They were also bringing their religious beliefs. They were bringing their social customs, their cultural customs, their own gods. And so Corinth was a melting pot in this biblical time frame. And Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, travels to Corinth and he plants a church there. He spends about 18 months in the city planting the church, establishing the church, helping it grow up. And then he heads out. You can read this if you're interested in this history, if this is the stuff that fascinates you. This is Acts 18 if you want to see the birth of the Corinth church. Okay, so you've got church plant, 18 months, Paul's there, things are going well. And then you have, if we're looking at 2 Corinthians, what does that by definition mean? There was first a 1 Corinthians. There was a prequel. And so you've got this letter written to this church in Corinth, this plant that he established, and it's written about three years after he established the church and he planted it. So, what has gone on in those three years between planting it, leaving it, and then this letter? Uh, some troubles. Things have not gone well. And so, one, I think even that detail in and of itself, that it's just three years later, should serve as a reminder to you how seriously we must take it when God says, be on guard for the church. In three years, you see the church in Corinth, the Corinthians, really fall into some troubling behavior, both theologically and in their practice as a church. And so after some back and forth letters that he alludes to, after an oral report from someone that Paul sends to visit the church in Corinth, God leads him to write 1 Corinthians. All scripture is God-breathed. And so God leads Paul to write 1 Corinthians to address some of these issues. So when you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll see that his letter addresses their self-centeredness. The self-centeredness of the church in Corinth as it related to their corporate worship, as it related to how they behaved when they gathered together, and then also as it related to the mission of the church. 1 Corinthians addresses this issue that's risen up. It also addresses their lack of appreciation for the holiness that God requires of his people. So God uses this letter to really call out and draw attention to some very problematic things popping up in the church. But it's not all that. It also has wonderful, beautiful reminders. He reminds the people of the free gifts of God in Christ, of redemption, of sanctification, of forgiveness, of wisdom, of righteousness. It's this wonderful treasure trove of, hey, this is what you've fallen into, but be reminded of what you were given. He reminds them of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He reminds them of unity with the resurrected Christ. So you've got a very rich letter talking to a group of people who Paul has spent intimate time with and knows trying to make sure they're staying on the right track. That's 1 Corinthians. And then you have about a year off. There's, there's about 12 months, maybe a little more, between the two letters. And 2 Corinthians actually is the third, possibly fourth letter that Paul has written to this body of believers. And so you've got, okay, we, we planted the church, we had three years, things went badly, we wrote 1 Corinthians, what's happened now in this gap period? And I know we're covering a lot of history, but we're, we're setting the foundation for looking at 2 Corinthians, because it's a very deep relationship Paul has with these believers, and we want to understand that, so we understand the varying tones that we'll see in 2 Corinthians. So in that year in between these two primary letters, Paul sends, he writes 1 Corinthians, hey, get back on track, and then he sends he sends Timothy to kind of check in. You know, okay, hey, we, we gave him a report, we gave him some guidelines, we gave him some correction. Timothy, go see how it's going. Timothy gets there and he finds that things are bad. The church is in significant turmoil. A faction of contentious, rebellious, false teachers have risen up and are actively trying to undermine what Paul had done in the church and what the gospel really was. And so Timothy gets there and he's like, things aren't great. So Paul shows up, he changes his travel plans, he goes to Corinth earlier than he had originally planned to, and when he gets there, the situation doesn't improve. It stays contentious, it stays ugly. And so rather than stay there and exacerbate things, Paul leaves. And he goes back away, he leaves the church in Corinth, and he kind of does so in embarrassment, in frustration, a little bit of shame, a little bit of disappointment. And he leaves, and he writes this letter. He writes a letter, and he sends it with Titus. And it's warning the church of, guys, I'm, I'm serious. Like, this stuff matters. And so he sends a smaller letter that we don't have, but it, that he alludes to in 2 Corinthians, you'll see as we study the book. And he sends it with Titus, calling out everything that he tried to address while he was there in person. And praise God, this time it sticks. And the majority of the church repents. The majority of the church recognizes we've gone off track, we've gone off the rails, and they repent and they return to holy living. They return to this sanctified identity as the bride, as the church. They return to a missional focus. They repent. But a small group, a small minority, remains in open rebellion, remains in open defiance, remains in open opposition, and stays in the body. And so all of this to say that 2 Corinthians is a very complex letter. He's not writing to, you know, if I'm writing to just the Curry's I just have to consider my relationship with the Curry's, right? We're friends, we get along, cool, that's an easy letter to write. If I'm writing a letter to the Curry's and someone else who I kind of know as well and we kind of agree but we've had problems in the past, well now that letter is going to be a little bit more intricate and nuanced because I'm trying to hit both audiences. And now all of a sudden you had a group who still doesn't like me and they don't want anything to do with me and I'm right I mean... Let's use a very blatantly obvious example, right? If you were writing one letter to the Republican and Democratic parties, there would be different tones in different paragraphs, right? Because we all have different opinions on those two sides. So Paul is writing to a group of people, some of whom have repented, some of whom have returned to the true gospel, some of whom are still in rebellion, some of whom are struggling with it. So it's a very diverse group that he is writing to. And so he does so with varying tones, and you'll know in different places where this this line is really encouraging, and then all of a sudden this line is highly, you know, contrasting to that in terms of feel. You're like, wait a minute, is this a different guy writing? The emotions really seem to switch here. It's because it's a deep history that he has with this body of believers with different ups and downs and bumps in the road. So some primary themes to look for as we go through 2 Corinthians... Look for sanctification. Look for the idea, the truth, the foundational truth that God is sanctifying his people, his bride. Look for two primary themes of identity versus role. Identity is who we are. Role is what we do. And significant problems arise In our lives personally and in our life corporately as the church, when we confuse identity and role. When we get those two mixed up, when we lose sight of identity, when we get caught up in role. And really there's two types of role that we'll kind of look at and talk at in this series. There's our eternal corporate bride of Christ role. That God has said, hey, this is your role for my kingdom that is universal. We will look at some universal roles that every single one of us are called to. I don't care what job you work in. I don't care if you're retired. I don't care what age you are. We will look at some universal roles that God calls his children to. And then we all have individual roles. We all work in different places. We all live in different places. We all have different family structures, right? And the ironic thing, kind of the tough thing is Those are actually our most temporary, most fleeting aspects of our life. At one point, my role was territory manager for an outdoor furniture manufacturer. That's done, I I still don't do that. I don't call up malls on Tuesdays to say, hey, you wanna buy some tables? That was a temporary role. That part of my life is over. A lot of times we get so caught up obsessing over the temporary roles that we allow ourselves to lose sight of the eternal roles. We allow ourselves to lose sight of the eternal identity. So we'll look at all of this in this letter. God unpacks these things in wonderful ways. And then finally, the fourth major theme to look for is the power of God in all these things. Sanctification is only made possible by the power of God. Remaining firmly entrenched in my identity is only made possible by the power of God because the world is going to distract me or try to at every turn. Living out my role in a holy way that is pleasing to the Lord is only possible by the power of God. I cannot do this on my own. And so we're going to look at also the fourth theme of the power of God in all these things and specifically frequently it will mention the Holy Spirit's role in this. But this is the context of 2 Corinthians. This is the background. This is is not writing to a group of strangers. This is not writing to people he's never met or only met once. These are people with a long history that he deeply loves and cares for. And this brings us to the wonderful letter of 2 Corinthians. And so if you would please, I know we've been talking and we've done it a little bit out of order normally, but if you would please stand out of respect for the words of our King. This is 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's pray quickly. Lord, thank you for your word again. Thank you for the ability to engage with it, to look at history, to look at the Bible as a whole and see how it fits together. God, teach us. We utter this cry again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me see it. What word was repeated ad nauseum in those first 11 verses? Comfort. So, if you're ever reading the Bible, I, you know, we hear from people hey, studying the Bible is hard on my own. I didn't didn't train for this. I didn't go to school for this. How do I study the Bible? A very great starting point is what word gets repeated a lot? If you're reading a passage and you see a word that is repeated over and over again, okay, let's circle in on this idea. So if we see comfort over and over and over again, that tells me we better understand what it's saying. I mean, if this is so central that, let's, let's fly through this. I'm going to read very quickly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. That's 10 times in four verses. That's a big idea. We want to understand what God is saying when he repeats this over and over and over again. So we're going to look at comfort. But before we dive in, we're going to quickly take a macro look and look at what did we say the themes were? Sanctification, identity, role, and the power of God. We already see that in this first introduction to Paul's letter. We already see identity, one five For we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. Guys, the moment you try and conceive of your identity apart from Christ, you're going down the wrong track. For the, for the Christian, for the believer, for the redeemed, the forgiven, the adopted into God's family. The moment we try and wrap our minds around our identity, the moment we try and answer that question, who am I, and we try and do so apart from Christ, We've missed the point. Our identity must be rooted, grounded, firmly established on the cornerstone that is Christ. It was a fad, and sometimes we poke fun at church fads. Those bracelets, WWJD, that is one of the most succinct life worldviews I can think of. Why? Because my identity is meant to be Christ. So in any given moment saying, what would Jesus do in this situation, is a good place to begin. We also see role. Not just identity, but role. Okay, if I am identified with Christ, in Christ, through Christ, what is my role as such? So that we may be able to comfort those who are being afflicted. What does it say in verse 111? You also must help us by prayer. Those are universal roles. That is not reserved for well the elders they do the praying and we do the showing up. Well the deacons they do the comforting and we do the showing up. The worship team, the kids wing, the sound booth like right this is the part of the church that does the comforting and the pray the praying I do this other stuff. No, those are universal roles. Every believer is called to comfort one another and to engage in prayer. And what does he say? You also must help us by prayer. We have looked at prayer time and time again. I will never grow tired of emphasizing the power and the beauty of prayer. This is identified as a role for the believer, for the church. And then in all things, though, what is transcendent? What is triumphant? The power of God. Let me reread verses 1, 8, and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened. Anybody ever heard, oh, hey, it's okay, Joe. God will never give you more than you can bear. I've got it crocheted on a doily in my kitchen. It's beautiful. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 throws that idea right out the window. God will not give you more than you can bear is nowhere in Scripture. Listen to what Scripture actually does say. We ourselves were burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. God will never give you more than he can bear. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I can't raise myself from the dead. I cannot forgive myself eternally. Guys, the power of God in all things is sovereign. It is supreme. It is unmatched. It is unassailable. We see these wonderful, wonderful themes already in the first verses. It's incredible to look at identity, role, and the power of God in all these things. And then within that, he gives us a very specific detail. He gives us this very specific detail of comfort. We need to use this word biblically. Because our culture does not use this word correctly. Our culture does not use this word biblically. I did the, the language, di- I mean, we've talked about this before. We'll, we'll share some of this. But this time I really dove into the etymology. Like, what are the roots of this? I want to trace this word all the way back. What does it mean now? What does it actually mean in the Bible? What is God actually saying when he uses this word comfort? Here's what it means today, to relieve distress. Comfort means to remove something. Whatever is difficult, whatever is painful, whatever is aggravating, whatever is frustrating, whatever that source of issue is, comfort is to remove that. If you're going for a walk, you get a pebble in your shoe, I'm in discomfort. So what do I do? I remove the pebble from my shoe. Now I am in comfort. These are my comfortable clothes. Life is comfortable right now. It is a removal of distress in our current concept of it. That is not remotely what this word means. So let's look at this word in Scripture. It's a Greek word, paraklesis. Paraklesis is a cognate, big word time. Cognate just means an idea that goes in harmony with. Okay, so peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter is a cognate to jelly. The two ideas operate in harmony together. Paraklesis is a cognate with parakleto. These two words go together in their idea. A parakleto is a noun. It is a legal advocate. So this word paraklesis that we've translated comfort what it means is, it's a call, it's an urging done by someone who is near with truth. It's a motivation. It's, a, it's an inspiration. It's a driving forward. It's a spurring on. One commentary described it as, with this idea of the legal advocate, they said, so a periclesis is a personal exhortation that delivers the evidence that stands up in God's court. It's an urging on with God's truth. That's what paraklesis is. It's properly used by God to directly motivate and inspire believers to carry out his plan. And in the case when it's talking about one another, the relationship of the church to one another, it's used to get to the idea of God calling his people to drive one another on, to inspire one another on to action to fulfillment of God's plan. Someone who is near, delivering a message of truth that spurs you forward. We've looked at names of God Elohe Mikrov. I would be so thrilled if anyone remembered this. And I confess I had to look up which name it was too, so no pressure. Elohe Mikrov means God who is near, God who is near to his people. So even this idea of paraclesis, of comfort coming from someone who is near, reminds us that one of God's names for Himself is the God who is near. And it's in His nearness that He gives us that motivation. He gives us that fire. He gives us that urging. He gives us that call to move forward. Consider this word paraclesis, as it appears throughout Scripture and tell me if in any of these instances it's talking about a removing of what's difficult, a removal of what's frustrating or annoying. Acts 9, 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church was at peace, it was building itself up, and it was multiplying. If I use our modern, stunted understanding of comfort, that makes no sense. Everything was going well, so the Holy Spirit removed what was difficult. What? No, the church was at peace. It was building itself up, and it was multiplying. Walking in the comfort of the Lord, walking in the urging, the exhortation, the challenge, the call, the fire of the Holy Spirit, it did these things. Acts 15 Starting in verse 28, this is the, after the Council of Jerusalem where you've got the Gentiles and the Jewish people and they're talking about, okay, what is the mark of true? Like, what, How do real believers behave? They all get together to talk about making sure they're not imposing legalism on one another. The Council of Jerusalem, now we come to Acts 15, 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. That word, periclesis, translated there as encouragement. This idea of, hey, this is what we're called to do. This is what God's truth is, so live this out. God uses the word periclesis. Romans 12, 6-8, having gifts that differ, talking about the beauty of the body, having different gifts. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our teaching, or if if service in our serving, the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts, challenges, drives, pushes in his exhortation, Paraclesis. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 to 3. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of affliction, we did not waver from our mission. Why? For our appeal, our paraclesis, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. 1 Timothy 4:13 Until I come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation to teaching to paraclesis Hebrews 6:17-18 So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement Periclesis, to hold fast to the hope set before us. That periclesis is an urging to hold fast, to take action, to do something. Time and time again you see this. Hebrews twelve three to 5 Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The paraclesis. In your struggle, in your trial, in your tribul- tribulation, in your suffering, you have not yet resisted. So don't forget paraclesis. Don't forget comfort. It is not a removal of difficulty. Comfort is not a let's take the problem away. Anyone, think think to your 20s. If you're in your 20s, if you're not in your 20s, would anyone say, you don't have to put your hands up, would anyone say that in your 20s you had affliction, you had exhaustion, you had trying times, you had difficulty? Yeah, I see head nod. 20s, 20s had challenges for people, afflictions for people. In your 30s? Anybody have afflictions in your 30s? Yeah, 40s, yeah, I see head nods, 50s, 60s, right? Like, Okay, so if I have afflictions, if I have sufferings, if I have trials and tribulations in every decade of my life, well, then when is comfort going to get here? When is this removal of distress going to get here? God talks about comforting me, but you all just told me that in every decade, I have nothing but to look forward to but trials. So how can I have comfort? Because comfort has nothing to do with the removal of distress. Comfort has everything to do with God's truth spurring His people on to not quit, to don't give up, keep fighting. That is what comfort is. That is biblical comfort. That is what God promises His people. He says, I am near to you. I have truth that stands up. So in your affliction, I will comfort you. I will drive you on. I will motivate you. I will inspire you. That is biblical comfort that can only come from God's truth. It's why the church has to be built on it. Because everything else falls short if we're looking for this outside of God and His Word. But let's translate this to daily life. For you and I, first, it begins with knowing that God is near to us. We talk about identity and role. My identity is God's child. My identity is a son of God. Part of that identity is His nearness. Really, have you thought about that? Have you considered that part of your identity as an heir? What does the Bible call us? Conquers and co-heirs with Christ. It says we've been adopted into sonship of the King. Part of that identity is god's nearness that gift that privilege that joy that encouragement so god in his nearness to us presents evidence that stands up he says this is my word this is what's true this is what your situation may feel like this is what's true It may feel like the battle is not going your way. It may feel like everything is against you. It may feel like defeat is inevitable, but that's not true. This is my evidence. This is my word. What is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit? We have looked at this countless times that every believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus say? One of the key roles of the Holy Spirit is to remind believers of the truth, to lead them in all truth. His nearness brings with it a reminder of truth. A comfort, a paraclesis that should urge us on, that should urge us back into the fight. This is Rocky laying on the mat, and his corner is yelling, Get up! That's paraclesis. So now what does that mean for us? Okay, this is what God says He does for us. I am called to identify with Christ in, in suffering and comfort. Verse 5. And then verse 4, So that you may comfort one another with the comfort you yourselves receive. Part of our universal role is to comfort one another. We are not replacing God in this. We are not doing this better than God. God does this perfectly. We do not because we are broken, fallen people. But we cannot deny that God says, Hey, I comfort you, so you go comfort one another. He has given us this role. He has given us this charge as part of being the body, being the bride. So by nature of understanding God's role in this, God's definition of nearness, what does that mean for you and I? We've got to be near to one another. We have to. I'll give 20 bucks to anybody who can give me a hug without leaving your seat. I'm not moving. I'm staying right here. You can't. If I had a medical emergency and fell down right now and you wanted to help me, what is the first thing you would have to do? You'd have to move. You'd have to get out of your seat. Guys, if we are called to comfort one another, we've got to be near to one another. We have to be involved in each other's lives. Scary part, that means you've got to let people be involved in your life. Scary part, that means you have to allow people to be close to you. You have to let the church draw near. That's tough. We're not saying be naive. I'm not saying your cart bumps into a stranger's cart at Kroger and you're like, hey, let me unload on you my deepest, darkest fears. But you have to ask yourself. Everyone else in this body has been called to comfort you. As a member of this body, as a member of this bride, everyone else has been called to comfort you. So if I refuse to allow you to actually know me, I'm preventing you from doing what you are called to do for me. I don't want to think about it like that. If you're called to comfort me and I won't let you close enough to do so, I'm preventing you from doing what you are called to do. There is beauty in being known by people. Yes, it can be intimidating. Yes, it can be scary at first. Yes, we've been burned in the past. And yes, that's painful. Absolutely. When the church gets it wrong, it's, it's so ugly. It's so painful. We're not denying any of that. We're not minimizing any of that. We are acknowledging that the church is called to comfort one another. And that will require nearness. And so I'm asking if we would be brave enough as a church to be near to one another. If we would be selfless enough as a church to be near to one another. To consider others more important than ourselves. To consider others' needs more important than our own. If we would be humble enough to be near to one another. Because paraclesis requires Proximity. So we have to ask, are we near to one another? Do we allow others to be near to us? And then if in that nearness, Paraclesis, a paracleto provides paraclesis, which is a presentation of evidence to urge on, to inspire action, a calling, an exhortation. Well, do I know God's evidence? If I'm called to comfort you with God's Word, if I'm called to challenge you with God's Word, if I'm called to spur you on to action with God's Word, with His evidence, do I know it? If your car blows up and all the check engine lights come on, don't call me. I'm just being honest, right? Like, Sam, this is leaking. Great, you should call someone who knows what they're doing. I don't know why you called me. I'm not going to be much help if I don't know what I'm supposed to comfort with. And what do we look at? This is a universal role. So before the enemy convinces you and starts to whisper, yeah, that's why the church hired him, so that he can know it. No, 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 this is given to the church. This is given to the bride. This is given to the body. This responsibility to comfort one another, which means, guys, this has to be so firmly entrenched in our hearts that it's what defines our worldview it's what defines our approach to relationships that we're listening with ears attentive to other people's needs and hurts and we can respond with the truth of god we can present his evidence that holds up it's almost like scripture all ties together and we see this in other places talking about the church consider hebrews hebrews 10:23 to 24 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It goes on to talk about not neglecting to gather together. These three verses unpack this rich, deep tapestry of, hey, one of the blessings of proximity to one another is that in that proximity, when there are hard things, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That inherently tells you that there will be opposing forces. Tug of war, you have to hold fast to the rope because someone else is pulling in the opposite direction. So let us hold fast without wavering, without yielding, without flinching. What is part of that? Spurring one another on, encouraging one another, stirring one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 12 12 to 13. Remember, we already looked at verses 3 and 5. So these verses build on what we have already established, this idea of you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Have you already forgotten the exhortation that you received as sons? As you continue in that passage, you come to verses 12 and 13, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. What is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. How do you do that? What's the Bible say? By straightening it. By doing something about it. By taking action. When are we most tempted to quit? When we're winning? If you're up, if you're up three touchdowns with two minutes left in the Super Bowl, you think the coach is going, hey, should we quit? Should we just toss in the towel, forfeit the game? No. You don't want to quit when you're winning. You don't want to quit when everything's going well. You don't need somebody to drive you on when you're in first place. That's when you're enjoying it. When you're down three touchdowns with two minutes to go, that's when the coach is like, guys, don't quit. Don't stop. Don't give up. When you're last and you can't even see the other runners in front of you, that's when you want to quit. You don't want to quit when you're in first. You want to quit when you're struggling. You want to quit when you're falling behind. You want to quit when other people are passing you. You want to quit when it's hard. That's when I want to quit. That's when I want to give up. When there's affliction. And it's in that moment of affliction, it's in that moment when I want to just go home and throw in the towel that God says, no, I comfort you. I spur you on. I inspire you. I invigorate you. I drive you forward. I challenge you. That's what God does for us. It's incredible. That's what we are called to do for one another. This is a a wonderful introduction to the idea of identity and role. Because it goes back to what God has declared to be true. And God has said, no, my bride is not a last place finisher. My bride does not come across the finish line after everybody else. Like, my bride does not lose. My bride is victorious. Yeah, you're weak. My power is sufficient for your weakness. My grace is sufficient for your weakness. Yeah, you sinned again and you broke it again and you messed up again, and I forgive you. My mercy is unending. This is all part of the identity of the church. The identity of the individual believer and so in my approach to life and my roles to life this is the identity that must drive me as someone who is not meant to quit as someone who is not meant to take the easy way out as someone who is not meant to think about what's just best for me and easiest for me that is not my identity so that cannot define my role That cannot shape my approach to my role. Because that is not who I am in Christ. That is not who you are in Christ. That is not who the church is in Christ. And Paul lays these things out wonderfully for us. So as we consider these things this week, as we look at this introduction to 2 Corinthians, as we look at this this letter that we're diving into, and we look at these truths about God's power in all things, about the identity He has given us, the role He has called us to. Let's read Isaiah 51 and Hebrews 12. Look for these themes. Look for identity. Look for role. Look for sanctification. Look for the power of God. Look for the Holy Spirit at work in believers. Apply the Acts model as we pray through these things, as we seek to grow in prayer. The verse we're memorizing that we introduced last week, we spent five or six weeks with with Acts 1.8. Now we're moving to Acts 2.42. Read Acts 2.42, work on memorizing it, ask how it relates to this sermon. Ask where your devotion is. And then the question, the reflection is simple. How could you invigorate? Let's go back to the biblical definition of comfort. Forget removing distress. Forget just trying to make things easier and pretending like we can do that. How about honesty and recognizing that we're not promised easy? So in that, how can you personally, yes, I mean you literally personally, how can you invigorate, inspire, motivate, encourage, push, sharpen, challenge other believers this week? And if right now you're thinking, man, I don't even know who I'd call to do that, then maybe you need to back up one step to Paraclesis and say, am I close enough to other believers to comfort them? I can't answer those questions for you. You're going to have to be honest about them. But this is the universal, eternal role God has given us His church. Please, let's go after it together. Rooted in the power of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the grace and mercy of Christ, for His glory. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we praise You for who You are. We praise You that You are Elohei Mikrov, that You are the God who is near, the God who is close. Lord, we praise You that You are truth. We echo, or rather we remind ourselves of what Jesus said. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Lord, thank You that in Your nearness In your truth, you drive us. You encourage us. You challenge us. You don't let us lay on the mat. God, apart from you, we don't have the strength to get back in the fight. We freely confess that and admit that and recognize that. That apart from you, we don't have this on our own. So Lord, we also thank you that we are not on our own. That it is not us who live, but Christ who lives in us. May your church be the church that you call her to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, Otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.